Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Tuesday, March 20th, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. We are live here from the Shop Talk Show in sunny Las Vegas and excited to have on the show Daniel Galati. Daniel is a partner at Comcast Ventures and has had stints in retail with BCG, Fab.com, Fashion Stake, and more. His current portfolio companies include Away, MealPal, Poncho, Shine, and The Athletic. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, guys. Great to be here. Cool. Uh, so before we even get into it, I know you you uh, had a little experience with Fab. Is my name bringing back any bad, <laughs> bad memories for you? I had to do a double take, but... Um I would say uh, it was it was a roller coaster ride at Fab, but but all good memories now. So uh, I think we're good there. That is the beauty of time. Yeah, that is the beauty of time. Yeah, totally. Uh, so Daniel, one of the things we always like to do early in the show is uh, get get a little flavor for sort of how you you uh, came to uh, this industry and what your career matriculation was. So totally, my matriculation. Wow. Yeah. Um, I get. I get. Paid extra for using big words. I like it. Quite the sesquipedalian. <laughs> Ding. I like it. I just wrote that down. Um, so I guess kind of made a windy road, um, kind of followed a windy road into VC. So started my career straight out of undergrad at a company called Boston Consulting Group, BCG. It's a management consulting firm. And um, really at BCG focused on actually ret- retail clients, so like very large retailers. And, you know, at that time, this is kind of 2006, 2007, um, a lot of those retailers were really thinking about just starting to thinking, just starting to think about technology as kind of customer facing. Um, so I think historically they had always thought about kind of quote unquote IT as kind of this back office efficiency um, kind of box that they had to check um, and kind of with the growth of Amazon and, and, and some, of the, some of these other early e-commerce players, um, ret- uh, sort of technology as a um, customer-facing vector as a strategic tool really um, was starting to shift to the to the forefront. So a lot of my time there was um, just kind of cutting my teeth on, uh, di- you know, forming digital strategies, technology strategies for these big, for these big retailers. Um, kind of figured out that I had a passion for uh, technology, for early stage um, sort of embryonic technologies and wanted to kind of double down there. So, um, you know, after a few years at BCG, a few great years at BCG, um, sort of went to business school and started my first kind of real company uh, called Fashion Stake, which is a marketplace for independent fashion, kind of verticalized Etsy. That was at a time where... Um, the fashion industry specifically was kind of opening up. So, um, you know, it's going to sound really antiquated, but this was 2009, 2010, where, um, you know, you had bloggers coming to New York Fashion Week for the first time, right, and, like, posting these, like, amazing photos of um, of all the stuff that was going on. Like, that, that sort of democratization of the industry had never really happened before. I think fashion was always kind of this closed, closed-loop um industry and so what you had was you had this new wave of consumer demand that was sort of unleashed and consumers were really um trying to go beyond the traditional luxury brands uh and 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 sort of their aperture for uh different types of fashion from different types of designers was increasing and we 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 tried to kind of hook into that so we we rent you know raised venture capital um, you know, grew the team, ran the business for a few years, and um, a, a little company in New York called Fab.com was just getting started. Um, you know, I think this was 2011, 2012. And at the time, it was basically the fastest growing e-commerce company, you know, definitely here in the US uh, and, and maybe even beyond that. 
And, you know, Fab was really, for those that don't know Fab, was really a, um, a, a highly curated design-centric e-commerce destination, right? Did so, it start with kind of a flash sale and then kind of built kind of more kind of curated it did. Well, it actually started. It, it actually started. Dating started site. Yeah, it actually yeah, started beyond that. Yeah, it was yeah. a hookup, yeah. So it was a, well, yeah, it was kind of, um, it was a hookup site and then it became sort of this social media site for, um, for this sort of gay population that was Jason and Bradford's um, shtick. They had a big following and sort of then pivoted to, to this commerce destination. Um, and so they did, you know, amazing numbers. You know, even today the numbers, you know, you kind of throw out there, you know, you know over a million dollars a month in the first kind of 25 days and, and sort of up and up from there. Um, and they really built their business off of home goods, actually, like home goods and and uh, home furnishings. And, and fashion was always something that they almost needed to get into because of how big it was, but just didn't have the right you know, DNA and, and, you know, were doing 20 other things that they um, around their core business. Um, and so they, we, we ended up joining forces in January of 2012. And our whole team went over and I, I um, ran the fashion vertical essentially. And fashion went in that year from, you know, nothing to Fab's biggest vertical, soft goods, um, apparel specifically, men's and women's was Fab's biggest business, which kind of, um, a, I think was a bit of a sign of the times. I think Gilt Group and some of these other companies had had popularized kind of online shopping for for apparel in a way that um, didn't exist before, and and also from a margin perspective, um, it was it was actually really attractive. So, um, had a great time there. You know, um, for all its for all its pros and cons, didn't sort of wanted to go back into the early stage world, um, and so. You know, ended up joining Comcast Ventures Entrepreneur in Residence and um, have been there since, you know, 2014. Yep. Fab was in New York, right? So then you, was in did York, you yeah. when did you move out to SFO? So I moved to San Francisco in January of last year. Okay. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the sort of New York e-commerce scene, which, you know, again, is like a pretty new scene. Yeah. Kind of guilt group in 2007. and, and It's and all double-click people. A lot, lot of double click, is, yeah. a lot of double-click people. <laughs> there's a double-click mafia that doesn't get talked about as much yeah. as like the PayPal mafia. Totally. But and there's like, an East Coast double-click mafia that's behind most of the, the companies there. Totally. And like we're, um, we're investors in a lot. Like Zola, we're really happy investors in, in a company called Zola. And Shan was obviously guilt group. and She's been on the show. Yeah. She's been on the show. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and that, that sort of initial cadre that 2007, 2008 cohort have kind of all gone and, and done really great things in, in New York. But um, sort of got to – it was a pretty small community. Now it's a really big community with all the D2C brands. Um, but, but at the time, there weren't that many, um, that many folks in, in e-com over there. And so, um, you know, when I jumped over to VC, had the – sort of had those relationships and had the privilege of sort of pretty robust early deal flow just because the – the, the it wasn't that hard to kind of bear hug the the sector and kind of get to know everyone um and then and then you know as i sort of progressed within comcast ventures you know san francisco is you know west coast is kind of too almost too big to ignore and so moved over here and 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 try to cover new york from here as well so very cool awesome and a, a brief side note, uh, one of the founders of Fab.com, Jason Goldberg, and I share the same name, and he's uh, somewhat of a polarizing figure. So I get, uh, or particularly used to get, like a ton of funny emails intended for him. Yeah. And uh, so we would talk, and I'm like, do you want all these? And he's like, only if they're really funny. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and, and I guess on that note, my, my experience kind of you know, reporting directly to him was um, – I've not seen many people that can kind of rally troops the way he can rally troops, right? Like internally as well as um, externally with with investors and such. And I think it's no, it's no it, anyone who's ever met him in sort of those environments, I don't think would be shocked at sort of the amount of capital he's able to continually raise. Um, I think he's a great he's a great storyteller and and a great um, salesperson in in sort of the best possible way i think there are a lot of things that fab didn't do right um but you know i think 
Jason also has a lot of a lot of strengths. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, he's um, just starting a new gig, which is in the blockchain space, crypto space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it'll be fun to follow that and start getting that email. Uh, the you also we talk a lot about Amazon being a frenemy. Um, they for sure are for you because you have a book that's for sale on Amazon. I do, I do. Um, so passion and purpose. God, this is going back to 2011 when it was published. Um, the book was really, um, you know, kind of written at a time when the economy was tanking, right? This was post financial crisis, you know, um, sort of recession was in the air. Um, and more importantly, so the, ins- the core institutions of business were being very much, um, attacked, right? So like, you know, a lot of people pin the crisis on, on the banking system, I think, um, I think that's a fair characterization. You know, I think large companies, you know, big uh, corporations, kind of the Fortune 100 were being um, kind of torn down in, in the media. And there was this kind of general anti-business, anti-capitalist kind of climate, right? And that really didn't jive with what we were seeing you know, at, at business school and, and with some of the folks that, that I'd come to know, which was folks that were using business and their, you know, s- their own startup company specifically to kind of be a force for good, right? And so the book was really about, hey, how, do, it, how can we illuminate these stories, these kind of green shoots of folks that are, um, you know, whether it was in sustainability, whether it was in, um, clean tech, whether it was in, um, you know, more traditional kind of industries trying to um, generate profits but not um, disregard their obligations to other stakeholders, right? And so essentially the book is about those people and those stories and trying to provide some inspiration to to, to folks and, and engender more trust in kind of market economies and and capitalist systems more more generally so i would say amazon in that in that sense is is a friend because you know we pretty much sell all of our all of our product through amazon or or all of our books but certainly on the investing side it it can kind of cut both ways very cool let's dig into um so comcast ventures so um you know, every VC that I know has kind of a really good kind of synopsis of what the firm's sweet spot is. Um, you guys are interesting because you have that Comcast word in there. So I'd love to hear, kind of understand how that brings the weight of such a large corporation to, to potential startups. Totally. Uh, and then would love to hear kind of a little bit about some portfolio highlights of the companies you've, you've invested in while you're there. Absolutely. Um, so I guess the way I think about it is kind of VC plus, mm-hmm. right? So at Comcast Ventures, we are first and foremost – uh, financially motivated, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a completely separate you know, pool of capital. Um, all of the partners around the table are um, compensated based on the performance of our investing, yep. right? Which is, I think, fundamentally different from a lot of kind of quote unquote strategic funds out there, mm-hmm. right? So first and foremost, we're looking for um, you know great companies, great teams in. Uh, promising sectors, and you know, with the, with the with the uh, goal of generating ROI on those investments, right? Good. The plus part of it is really around um, you know our relation, our kind of special relationship with our sole LP, which is Comcast NBCU, right? So Comcast NBCU, when you when you kind of think about it, between uh, the core cap- the, you know core video business, um, wireless the SMB side of the business, the you know, media side of the business, the theme park side of the business, you, you kind of go on and on and on. It's kind of rare the startup company, whether it be a consumer company or an enterprise company, that doesn't have something to gain from a relationship with Comcast NBCU. Mm-hmm. So where possible, and you kind of have to time these things right for on, you know, on both sides, we try to... Um, we try to broker relationships between between both sides, and so really good example of that is um, show integrations. So you know, NBC has you know obviously original programming, and and you know TV can be a really great customer acquisition tool. And so um, you know, I've got a portfolio company Shine where 
we really tried to um, look for opportunities to integrate the Shine message and the Shine product and the Shine story into core NBC, you know, shows into the NBC slate. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really, you know, it's really it's one example of many. Um, of how it's definitely a tool not every VC can bring to the table. Totally, and I, and, <laughs> totally, and I think it's it's, yeah. it's one of these things where nothing is. Again, you have to kind of time these things right. Nothing's promised and all that sort of stuff. But it's something that I think I find at least it helps me differentiate in the market. Yeah, it must be nice too because you could you know let's say you're at Shop Talk, you see this interesting marketing technology from a SaaS vendor. You can go to you know I imagine there's like eight you know, of probably the best marketing people in the world you can go to and say, Hey, how do you feel about this cool new email thing? Or totally. cause you know, cause you guys are doing it at a scale that's a, you know, top 20 kind of a scale. And totally. they may say, wow, that's pretty interesting. Or, Oh, I've been doing that for eight years. And, totally, and totally. you know, so that, that must be nice on your side to go and, and be able to get, you know, some, some real verification from, from practitioners that are doing this stuff on a daily basis. It is. Um, that's all true. I think the other point to make is, you think about kind of – I think our view is financial returns almost precede strategic value, mm-hmm. right? So like there are two ways you can look at it. One is, hey, let me just take what Comcast NBCU is kind of currently interested in and go and invest in those sectors, right? That's one lens. I think that's a lot of strategic funds, corporate funds. You know, the other lens is like let me go out and find the best companies and – um you know, I think we take that approach because we feel like those companies in the future will actually um, be most beneficial to someone like a Comcast NBCU, yeah. right? So, so that's one kind of premise, which is kind of financial value precedes, you know, event- you know eventually creates strategic value, not the other way around necessarily. And I think secondly, um, if you actually look at the data, and I was, I was going through this the other day, it's kind of like the the hottest sectors of today don't accurately uh, predict the best returns of tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? So if you look at you know sort of all, all the way through the the different life cycles of tech, um, you know it, it it can be the case that you know a hot sector of today generates you know great great returns, but in general we see that. You know, prices get bid up. You get a lot of me too competition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, what we really try to focus on is less on s- sort of sector wide bets, particularly at the early stage, and more around like the individual companies and the individual teams. And do we feel like they're building something kind of unique and interesting? Yeah. So I think we we definitely take the point of view that y- you have to be you have to be contrarian right to make money, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You can't just be right. Yep. Cool. So do you, um, just some, some of the normal VC kind of parameters, is there, are you guys, is there a certain stage or you like series A, B, C, seed? Uh, and then is there a certain kind of investment amount that you're looking for? Um, so yeah. what's nice about strategic folks is a lot of times they have a lot more flexibility than, you know, like a certain VC will go to their limited partners and they'll get pretty boxed in. They'll, they'll be, you know, we are a, you know, we're looking for Series B, and the company has to have five million in revenue, and it's going to be consumer internet, and and really very specific. Um, are, are you guys where do you fall into that spectrum? Yeah, I would say historically we were more specific, and today we're very uh, we're much more general, mm-hmm. right? So historically, and I think this was the driving factor here was kind of the folks that you know were around the table were just kind of more later stage in their orientation, right? So we used to you know, before I joined, um, sort of certainly focused on, I would even say post series B investing. Yeah. And probably more heavily on the enterprise side than the consumer side. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, ad tech, SaaS, um, even infrastructure was kind of more of the focus. I would say since then over the last, you know, five or so years, our appetite, you know, our appetite for early stage investing has kind of dramatically increased. I mean, we still, we still do a lot of growth growth investing, um, and we're still uh, we still have a great sort of enterprise sort of B two B practice. But you know what we saw was you know more and more companies getting sort of locked up by deep pocketed VCs pretty early on in their in their life cycle, 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the, the fact of the matter was, was just like we weren't getting a shot if we weren't already in those companies. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, increasingly we, you know, I focus on seed and series A investing almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as do some of my, of my colleagues. And so, you know, when you sort of put us all together, we are a relatively sector agnostic, you know, and now stage agnostic firm. And I think there are some there are some markets that you go into where you kind of say, you know, we want to let this play out a little bit and, you know, come in a little bit later and and write bigger checks later. Like, we're, we, you know, we announced a pretty big effort, um, a crypto effort this year. And, you know, we'd been tracking the space for, for a number of years and for, for a variety of different reasons felt like now was the time to sort of come in and, and and we're focusing on sort of early stage investing in 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 that area. You know, there are some other markets where, um, you know, commerce is is one example of that where we feel like we can be really competitive at the late stage as well as the early stage, and and we're we're happy to sometimes let things play out before kind of jumping in with an investment. So I think it's it's highly sector dependent. Um, but to your point, I think we've got the flexibility to to sort of enter it at most points in the, in the business cycle. Awesome. So give us, um, so I, I went through some of the portfolio companies, maybe give us like a little kind of summary of, of some of the ones that would be most, uh, you know, appropriate for like the shop talk kind of audience. Yeah. So, um, just a couple that I've invested in, um, you know, one of them is a company called away, which is a direct to consumer travel brand. Mm-hmm. So I invested in that company in July 2015 was was when the f- seed round got done and really the the thesis around the investment was um you know you've got you, you've got these pretty big incumbents in in Samsonite and Tumi that don't actually generate a ton of excitement with consumers mm-hmm. right and yet, at the same time, you know, luggage is a nine billion dollar category domestically, and um, you know, it, it's a, it's a, it's a huge market opportunity. Um, yeah, at the same time, those players weren't uh, digital natives, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you could see the opportunity for a pretty dramatic share shift if someone came in, you know, applied the D 2 C model to that industry, and um, and sort of marketed themselves as this, sort of this aspirational travel realm, which is what Away has done. And I think um, I think it's grown a lot faster than than even um, sort of the the investors have, have have would have predicted. And I think their growth has been pretty astounding. They um, I think have successfully created like one of the things that I always think about is what makes a great D 2 C brand, right? Like why does Away succeed when others, even in the category, have failed? And I think the thing that makes a really good D2C brand, I think that Away's, what Away has done really well is created this almost aspirational world for the consumer to kind of step into, right? So it was never about the technical specifications of the suitcase. It was never about even the, the, the you know, the suitcase. It was about the story around this, this you know, this travel, this global traveler lifestyle that these millennials I think really took to early and the fact of the matter is when you create that aspirational lifestyle that kind of gives you the license to sell a lot of things to the consumer mm-hmm. right like starting with luggage but you, you know today they announced um front pocket you know last week they announced you know aluminum luggage um they've got a, a lot of other really interesting things in the pipe but you could only, you could have only done that if you had first kind of laid that brand foundation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where in the D 2 C world we see the the bifurcation where you know you know whether it's Glossier or Away or, or Casper, these guys have done such a great job selling the um, lifestyle to the consumer. And I think the ones that we see that are less successful are just kind of pushing product and playing the same kind of LTV cat game as everyone else and. And you know, that feels a lot more unsustainable to us. And so, you know, I think Away has been a really exciting company for us. Um, you know, I think to give you an example of, of more of a marketplace investment, um, I led the Series A uh, round in a company called MealPal, which is a 
subscription service for um, meals that you pick up. Mm-hmm. So the the this is made by individuals, kind of. So like, is made by, I'm a cook. I have some extra capacity. I want to join the marketplace. Kind no, of thing. so it's uh, restaurant meals. Oh, restaurants. Okay. Yeah. So yep. existing existing restaurants, and the the thesis there was really, um, you know, the market for a fifteen dollar cheeseburger delivered to you for an eight dollar delivery fee is pretty tiny market, mm-hmm. right? I think we get. You're looking at that market right here. <laughs> oh wait, <laughs> <laughs> it's um, it's a you know sort of top 1% type of type of market that you're kind of solving for there. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty crowded market actually. Um, if you think about all the different players that are, that are in that space. And so meal power was really coming at it. What, what attracted me to meal power was like, it was a completely contrarian point of view, which is instead of charging for delivery, we're going to kind of take cost out of the chain and we're going to, and we're going to give value to the, to the consumer. And so they're actually going for, you know, essentially the most affordable restaurant lunch you can get, right? And so the 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 innovation there is, um, so that's kind of the pricing model. But the innovation there is really to these restaurants. You know, they've got thousands of restaurants on the on the platform. They're in I think thirteen cities. Um, you're growing really quickly. The innovation there was really a supply side innovation. Um, you know their their you know deals with with the restaurants and kind of how they get the restaurants to to operate profitably um, has been I think pretty unique and it, and it's actually a, a, the the business actually has to marshal a lot of really uh, interesting elements right around data around um, sort of the operational aspects of the business around you know managing this whole fleet of restaurants you know. It, there are a lot of things that have to kind of come together to have this be a really seamless consumer experience, and I think it's one of those it's one of those like complex coordination businesses where um, you know if you get it right, it can be it can be really powerful. And I think you know at the end of the day, the market for a six dollar restaurant lunch is you know ten or more times bigger than the market for a nineteen dollar you know cheeseburger delivered to you. So. That's why we got excited about that one. Yeah, it's interesting. You go to these restaurants now, and uh, I go to this one Chinese one, and they they really have ten devices lined up, and they've got you know the Uber Eats tablet, the Grubhub tablet. There's usually like two local ones, like in North Carolina we have Order Up and something else. And so <laughs> at some totally. point you're like, this is not sustainable. <laughs> totally. Yeah, and the last thing we wanted to do was just be another kind of delivery player. Yeah, right? we wanted to really create value for these restaurants. What is interesting to me about that space, though, is like. It, Everything like very for a long time we had these sort of traditional segmentations of these like different ways that consumers solve their eating problem like groceries versus ready to eat versus QSR versus fast casual and like the digital disruption of all of those businesses it, it feels at the moment like all bets are off and they all are potentially competing with each other for the consumer use cases. That's, that's yeah, I, I think that's definitely true. I think um, we in the food space, generally speaking, have, I think what's tough in the, in, in the food space um, is that you're trying to combine, you know, logistics, which is essentially a very low margin, tough, complex business with, um, you know, food prep, which is a you know food supply chains, which is like a really low margin tough business with delivery, which is a really low, you know like it's. I think where a lot of these players have really fallen is is you know particularly some of these restaurants that are. Um, I think Maple is a pretty good example where they're just really really low margin complex businesses that burn a lot of cash, right? Um, you know, I think with the meal kit companies, it's one where retention is 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 you know kind of the issue there and you kind of what happens is you just kind of churn through your early adopters and your CAC just kind of goes up up and up and and kind of hit this ceiling on basically churning through your audience so i think we theoretically agree that um you know that that you know the grocery space i think will move online in a way that it hasn't in the in the past but I think that will be the domain of the larger players. So like I just walked into my local Whole Foods on the weekend. It's like the whole front portion of the Whole Foods was 
the Amazon two-hour delivery prime fridge fridges, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that like when you have that scale, when you have that physical footprint, you're, you're really well positioned to um, essentially like execute on an omni-channel play, right? Which is order online and um, you know, you've got the shoppers picking in store and you're kind of leveraging both your online and offline assets. I think for a um, company starting today that um, is kind of subscale, you know, I, I think we feel like the the, the ones that are going to win have to have pretty big balance sheets. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're investors in a company in in Instacart, which is a company in that space where they have a really big balance sheet, <laughs> um, and you know they are they are doing really well, but. You know, it takes it takes a while to get there, and not every company can get there. So, yeah, it was interesting. I, I uh, moderated a panel on the future of grocery at the show yesterday, and uh, one of the the guys on my panel was the founder of Chef, uh, and he so they're a, a meal kit company, and his POV was very much uh, the future of meal kits is on demand, not subscription, because of the fatigue issue you mentioned, and that it's most likely store pickup versus direct to consumer, which feels like the sort of your bed at MealPal as well. Yeah, and I think, again, that's one where I think that trend kind of almost favors the incumbents a little bit more than the disruptors. Um, And so, you know, we never want to throw the baby out with the bathwater when when making investments, right? We we try not to redline categories. We try to really focus on the individual companies that will be the winners. but uh, but I I think that one is a is a pretty capital intensive one. Yeah, um, switching topics slightly because you you mentioned uh, Instacart uh, and it suddenly dawned on me uh, you you must have some relationship with Unilever because uh, I, I know you're both investors in Instacart and uh, you have a, a really famous exit in our in our space uh, that you sold to Unilever. Yeah, um, so you know Dollar Shave Club was an investment that one of my partners. Uh, Rick Prosco led, you know, that, that business, I think from the get go was pretty, you know, you hear all these stories about every business is a roller coaster and nothing goes up into the right. I think that's one where it pretty much went up into the right the whole, the whole time, <laughs> um, you know, right from the get go, right, right from the video all the way through to, to, to the exit. I mean, with a, with a few exceptions, but for the most part was a very, very healthy business kind of early on and sort of stayed that way. Um, you know, I think increasingly um, for a lot of these big e-commerce acquisitions, you know, whether it's a Jet, whether it's a Dollar Shave Club, um, whether it's a Chewy, it it almost becomes, you, you know, obviously the fundamentals are important. I think, um, you know, critical to, to, to kind of start the conversation. But I think a lot of the times these companies are now thinking about how quickly e-commerce share shift is happening and the fact that if they don't move quickly, they're kind of going to get left in the dust. And so they're almost thinking about these acquisitions as like a percent of market cap, almost like an insurance play. Um, and I think that's what's driving a lot of these kind of strategic multiples. Um, you know, Again, I think Dollar Shave Club could have definitely been justified on fundamentals. Um, but I think that was, that was as much a fundamental kind of led M&A story as it was a strategic M&A story. Yeah. I think, uh, I read some stories and I don't know any of the numbers, but I think they were putting some pressure on like Gillette and they were like starting to feel it at the cash register. Um, so yeah, it was almost more than an insurance policy. It was kind of like, holy cow, these guys are really onto something and eating our lunch kind of a thing. Totally. Um, Totally. And and I think it was Gillette was more of like a PNG story, but I think for Unilever it was a great opportunity to kind of get a shot at owning the the male bathroom. Yeah. Right. So like it was a story around razors, but I think um, sort of other ancillary products beyond that. Yeah, it's caused some interesting knock on effects. So there's an activist very active in PNG right now, and his whole thesis is you should have bought Dollar Shave Club, and you're not doing enough to go direct and you know, it's really interesting to see these these really big brands get shaken up from the top down uh, because they they are not investing enough in direct to consumer and digital native brands. Totally, and I think you know this week it was you know with the Toys R Us news, you know that's one where 
I, I just feel like that company has been really slow to innovate. You yep. know, it's it's they, um, you're in this, you know, huge category. Mm-hmm. You've got the biggest physical footprint, you know, in the world in the category. You've got almost ubiquitous awareness amongst, you know, your, your targeted consumer and, and, and more broadly. And so why, uh, it, it's not, you know, I think they could have done a lot to sort of usher themselves into this new era and they kind of didn't and you kind of see the result. The other thing is on on the retail side, what we see is almost this bifurcation of like retail. And so I think it's fashionable to come out and say, you know, retail is dead, this retail apocalypse, whatever. But I think what we're really seeing is there are pockets of retail that actually make a lot of sense and that are growing really quickly. Like off price is a really good example of that. Mm -hmm. So like the value segment of retail is growing really fast, right? And off price specifically, you know, you look at a Ross, you look at um, a TJ, you look at a Nordstrom Rack, you look at a Saks Off Fifth, like all of the growth in 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 these guys' businesses are from the off price channel. And I think you're increasingly seeing more and more supply made for channel, made for off price. You know, I think on the other end of the spectrum, you've got a lot of growth in luxury. Yeah. I think as as you see the premiumization of all sorts of different categories and um you know the the rich kind of getting richer you know I think the the growth in the luxury segment kind of plays to that I think where we see a lot of issues are kind of the middle ground right so where you know you're not a value play to the consumer you're not a luxury play you're kind of a middle play which I think is increasingly kind of a nothing play mm-hmm. because I think that's where you know our thesis is that's where e-commerce you know, hits you the hardest. And that's yeah. where Amazon hits you really hard. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of these bankruptcies and and whatnot where there's just no basis for differentiation in the consumer's mind and you're just never going to win on price and selection. And so that's where they're all failing. Yeah. If you're if you're neither value or convenient, then you're toast. Like Toys R Us isn't like a convenient place to go. And it's definitely not value. Macy's a lot of these guys that are closing stores are kind of stuck in that that death valley in the middle there. And we've had uh, folks from Deloitte on, and they have a really good report about this. And they call it the retail bifurcation. And yeah. they've got a lot of really good data around that. And that, that's a, definitely something that, that all brands and retailers should have in mind, I think, yeah. when, when they think about who they're going after. Um, you kind of brought it up, so let, let's dig into it. And it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't talk a little bit about Amazon. How, how much does that factor into your investment decisions? You know, it kind of... Um, you know, it used to be like when I started my one of my first companies, it was like, oh, my gosh, what are you going to do about Google? And then it was, you know, yeah. there's always some company that that's kind of top of mind with investors. Seems like Amazon's definitely, at least in the public markets, you know, they they open a pharmacy license in, you know, some little part of Florida and like all the all the drug stores are down 30 percent. Yeah. Um, is that when you guys go in, is that like one of the main things you think about? For, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's really hard to, you know, I think the latest stat I saw was Amazon is taking like 60% of every new e-commerce dollar coming on stream. Mm-hmm. And that percent has actually you know, gone up over the last few years. So I think a few years ago, that number was you know, a third. Yep. You know, a couple of years ago, that number was 50%. Now it's 60%. And so they're actually increasing their share of new e-commerce dollars, which is kind of scary. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, like, you know, I, I, you know, I was speaking to a, a VC friend of mine's we're kind of talking about shop talk has almost become like how to play defense against Amazon. Right. (laughs) And I think for some retailers, again, that's, that's probably the right, you know, that's probably agenda item number one, but I, I don't think that it is a given that Amazon will, you know, win across all categories, all geographies, all, you know, consumer segments, et cetera. Right. I think there was a time where you could sort of, draw boundaries around what Amazon would do, right? Like they would never get into, supposedly never get into fresh. They would supposedly never be able to do high end fashion. Like I think those, those boundaries are now being kind of broken down mm-hmm. as Amazon you know, needs to be in the biggest markets and will be in the biggest markets. At the same time, you know, I think you, as investors, we really think about what are the, we kind of start with the consumer, right? And we think about what are the vectors on which consumers make their buying decisions, you know, price, convenience, selection, experience, you know, kind of all the way down the, the list. And I think you are seeing, like, I think the D2C 
sort of revolution has come about because you've got proprietary product, right? Not available on Amazon. You've got great brand stories and you've got, you know, value for money. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you're seeing the success of these brands, I think, um, in a world where Amazon is, is, is actually, you know, gaining share. And I think the, you know, both things can be true, right? I think you can have vibrant lifestyle brands that are worth, you know, billions and billions of dollars. And you can also have at the same time, Amazon kind of growing. And, you know, I, I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Um, you know, I think that there are, there are other pockets, right? Like I've been spending a lot of time in um, sort of cross-border, you know, the international, you know, whether it is retailers based overseas or um, trying to play the geographical arbitrage between sort of the East and the West, you know, kind of like what Wish has done, but for other categories, you know, we've seen some great companies in the space that are really trying to... Um, almost reinvent the value equation for consumers. Like I think these D2C brands have really educated consumers that traditional brands can be a ripoff, right? And I think um, you look at businesses like Hush, you look at businesses like Wish, these are these are going to be really, really, I mean, Wish already is a really, really big business um, in part because it is a value play, but also because it's fun, right? It's fun to shop Wish. Like we're investors in a company called Holler. It's, you know, that the vector that those guys are competing on, one of the vectors is like shopping experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's another thing that we're looking at here, which is, you know, I love this company, Shop Shops, which is kind of this live streaming platform um, where influencers can kind of come on and, and, um, talk about the products that they're excited about and, and eventually have consumers transact. Like that's something shopping as entertainment feels like something that Amazon won't get to early. Yeah. And so, you know, I guess roundabout way of answering your question, like, yeah, we definitely think about Amazon at the same time. You know, we try to be thoughtful about where Amazon would be weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, make investments accordingly. The, the other data point is like, you know, whether you talk about Fanatics or Chewy or Jet, like these are all, you know, horizontal multi-brand retailers, right? Um, arguably competing head-to-head with Amazon. Mm-hmm. So like some of the biggest outcomes that we see, some of the biggest companies are like actually directly competing with Amazon. And so I don't think it's a given, I don't fall in the camp that like, you know, multi-brand retail is dead and it's kind of Amazon forever and ever i think that you know for those companies i think the main you know vector by which they compete is customer service and so you're really trying to get the customer to shop you for a particular category right for chewy it was you know obviously pets you know i think pets i think of my pet i think chewy first and i think if you can do that you can really compete against against amazon i think takes a lot of I think it's really hard to do that. It's increasingly difficult to do that. But again, like our job is to really try to find the the exceptions. Yeah, we we hear that a lot. The the shop attainment uh, component being a, a potential differentiator. The um, sort of a discovery uh, type experiences not being Amazon strengths. But you put all those things together, and the the big winner that we think at the moment is the most defensible against Amazon is. Branded live marijuana plants. <laughs> Just as a, I like it. I'm doubling down. <laughs> yeah, I'm doubling down. <laughs> one uh, before we move on from the Amazon topic. So, let, one tactical kind of thing that a lot of brands struggle with, um, and you're just to kind of pick. You, you mentioned Away, which is kind of a, a you know travel company. Um, should they sell on Amazon? So you've created this you know this brand. Um, if you're not on Amazon, you're missing like sixty percent of e-commerce. So. I'm I'm biased on this one because you know started a company that helps people sell on Amazon. Yeah. So, uh, but it is an interesting dilemma because you know the the, the argument against it would be all right now we're going to educate Amazon in this category we're going to show them our best sellers they'll come out with private label yeah uh, but you're kind of like you know damned if you do damned if you don't so yeah what I think how, where how I think com- about that? yeah I think where I come on, come down on that is it really depends on the company I think if you are building. I think the risk with selling on Amazon for a direct-to-consumer brand, if that's what we're talking about, mm-hmm. is um, you, you essentially get commoditized within the Amazon uh, environment. Yep. Right? So, like, what what happens is you, uh, you know, 
number X on a list of products and, you know, the consumer is essentially um, intent driven and not discovery driven and, and very, very, very price conscious, right? And so if you think about a brand that is trying to tell its story, um, Amazon, the Amazon environment just doesn't give you much uh, breath to, it doesn't give you much rope to tell your brand story, mm. right? And sort of going to our discussion earlier, it doesn't give you any way to create this world that consumers kind of step into, just kind of going back to what makes a great lifestyle brand. So I think that there are a ton of risks for D2C brands that are trying to tell this all-encompassing story um, to suddenly go on Amazon for the volume and find themselves be commoditized. So I actually think about it less as like Amazon will copy your, I mean, they have so much data already without you being there. Yeah. That like, you know, <laughs> if you, we're not investors in Allbirds, but I mean, if you look at all, sort of search Allbirds on Amazon, like there are hundreds of copycat products already, right? So I don't think whether Allbirds is on there or not, I think that that activity sort of happens. Um so, so I think on the brand side, it's, it's kind of tough um, to, to face that commoditization. That said, I think Amazon, I'm actually looking for companies that are leveraging Amazon as a platform, mm-hmm. right? And so like, I think that, you know, I think that there are really interesting things you can do with Amazon data mm-hmm. outside in, yeah. right? I think there are really interesting things you can learn from trending products on Amazon, um, and I think at the same time on the supply chain side, things are getting a lot quicker than they've ever been, right? Yeah. So like I, I'd love to see more companies that are actually kind of um, playing to the strength of Amazon and really trying to leverage Amazon. And, you know, you talk about some of the biggest companies in the world, like a lot of the, a lot of big companies get started because you have some sort of distribution unlock, mm-hmm. right? And if you think about... Um, I don't know, you think about in the gaming space, Zynga on Facebook, right, as a, as a kind of, you know, very obvious example where, you know, you kind of unlock this proprietary distribution, you kind of get to scale really quickly. I think Amazon could be that now for um, for the right types of companies. Yeah. You know, I don't think those types of companies will be, you know, aspirational lifestyle brands, but I think there are other types of companies that are more kind of data-driven, fast-turn you know, companies that um, you can see being actually built on Amazon and being very successful. If you, are you starting to see any like Amazon ad tech uh, deals yet? That seems like a up and coming space. Definitely. Um, we probably like every other VC haven't really focused on ad tech recently. Um, but, but yeah, I think there are, there are some really interesting uh, I think only I think Amazon itself is only starting to get into the potential of their of their platform in that in that respect. But I think um, you know it's something that we continue to look out for, and we've seen a couple. We we haven't really we haven't really dug in. I think to the extent that we will, but certainly interested in that in that space and those opportunities. Um, I also think that like if you think about Bonobos as an example on on Facebook, you know when Facebook opened their right rail. Like Bonobos was right there, and I think they they benefited a lot from those early clicks, um, not just from a sales perspective, but just from an awareness perspective. Like if you were on Facebook, you were in their target market at that time. Like you saw Bonobos, you know, you saw a Bonobos ad, and I think Amazon's ad ecosystem is at a similar kind of point in time now, where it's not. I think in a couple of years it'll be very very expensive. I don't think it's quite there yet. So I think there's kind of this window of time. Yeah, it's, it's uh, definitely going to be interesting to watch. I think you know, especially as all the, it's becoming an important platform for all the brands. And to your like much earlier contrarian point, like I probably wouldn't be very excited about ad tech around Google or Facebook at the moment. Um, but but Amazon may be an interesting space. And we've we've actually had a couple of interesting guests on the on the show that are focused on that in that space. Um, I want to pivot though. Uh, just one sort of last last set of questions before we uh, have to break. Um, what do you think all these trends do to the sort of traditional notion of a store? Um, I know, I, in, in particular, you you uh, mentioned uh, the uh, away, which I think had a couple stores. If I'm, they got four stores. Yeah, yeah. So we spent we spent a lot of time thinking about the new store format, right? And I think that that probably gives it away, right? Which is like we're not we don't think about it as 
this this mass wipeout of physical retail. We think about it, uh, and this is probably a pretty consensus view, we think about it as the innovation of the store format and what does that actually mean, right? So, we, you know, in a Waze example, which is probably the, the easiest one to think through, you know, you go into their store, you've got to walk to the back of their stores to find a suitcase, right? Like it is, it's, it's, a, it's a very intentionally designed store around giving the consumer a, um, inspiring the consumer to think about travel and, um, and really dig into that, you know, their next, you know, they're actually like, it's funny, like in the New York store, they've got a cafe uh, with all these travel guidebooks. And a lot of people sit there and read these guidebooks. And, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's, the stores are intentionally designed to kind of make you think about travel and, and have you think about travel and almost give you this oasis, like in your day to kind of have that space and, and um, have you buy into that, to that lifestyle. Right. And then uh, sort of at the end of that process, you know, Hey, if you want to buy a suitcase, we have them too. Right. And I think that's a very different, it's a nuanced but very important distinction between you know something like that and you know the physical store as a repository of product right and so i think when you think about the physical store as a product repository i think that's kind of dying and arguably um that death is kind of uh going to come about faster than a lot of people think i think you know, it's one of these things where you kind of decline two percent a year, and then you kind of fall off a cliff because you know the operational leverage is is such that that happens. Um, but I think if you can, you know, we think a lot about stores as experiences, and what does that mean for the individual brand, and not trying to push you product. Um, and I think some of the more tactical parameters that are typically smaller format stores typically less inventory in the store, sometimes no inventory in the store, um, typically an online offline sync, right? Whether it be um, the conversion happens online and pickup happens offline or there's some data collection online and, you know, the inventory fulfillment happens offline or you know, whatever the parameters are. Um, you know, we talk about smaller... Um, sort of shorter term leases you know so all these sort of more tactical parameters but i think we really it's kind of rare the direct-to-consumer brand at scale that won't have their own store network i think their store network will look very different to the incumbent store network uh, I suspect uh, you may well be right, and uh, Daniel, that's going to be a great place to leave it for today because it's happened again. We've used up all our allotted time. Uh, so if folks want to continue the conversation, we'd encourage you to jump on our Facebook page and leave us some questions. Uh, and if you enjoyed today's show, we would uh, certainly appreciate you jumping on iTunes and giving us that five-star review. Daniel, thanks for joining us today. If people want to find you online, what's the best way to, to find you? Uh, you can tweet at me. I'm at Daniel Galati, D-A-N-I-E-L-G-U-L-A-T-I on Twitter. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Thanks a lot. Yep. Until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. <laughs>